0: Well, good evening. It's uh, really good to be with you again uh, tonight in Crescent. Uh, glad to be able to join in your studies in First Samuel. We're we're also going through First Samuel and Apsley at the moment, so that's been really good just to be able to, um, I suppose, have have our heads in the same place and be thinking about the same portion of God's Word uh, as as I come to speak uh, to you this evening. Um, As we move through the chapters that we have come to tonight in 1 Samuel, we come to a real turning point in the kingdom of Israel. Before we dive in, I want you to think for a minute about how power is sometimes transferred from one ruler to another in our world. Sometimes it's an externally Influenced or imposed regime change, sometimes it's the result of a violent revolution, and other times it's a peaceful transfer of power. But any potential change like this brings many challenges, uh, both for the, the rulers and for those that they are seeking to govern. I find it interesting in the last week or or number of weeks as our own government struggles with questions around uh, leadership, it's clear that some people already have their eyes on the next election. They're asking the question, is my job safe? How will I fare at the polls if I do X or Y at this point in time? In other countries, people might be asking, what will happen if I speak out in support of this individual? What will happen if I speak out against? this cause or another, how will that affect my future prospects?" Tonight we'll continue to think about the remarkable story of Jonathan, the crown prince, and David, the anointed but yet uncrowned king, and how their friendship and love impacts their actions and their loyalties. We'll also try and draw some lessons uh, that are relevant to us as we study this part of God's Word. Let's start by looking, though, at how the story ends, or at least how this part of the story ends. I want to read uh, with you, first of all, from chapter 22 of 1 Samuel, the first couple of verses of that chapter, uh, and I'm reading this evening from the ESV. It says, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. At this point in the story, David has had to flee for his life. He is on the run. He has established beyond all doubt that Saul is determined to kill him, despite Jonathan's earlier interventions to try and talk some sense into his father, King Saul. And now David is holed up at the cave of Adullam and begins to attract a small group of loyal followers. It began with his closest friends and relatives and extended to anyone who was in distress, who was in debt, who was bitter in soul. And it says that he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. Now, this is actually a pretty unique and significant point in the story. It's the first time that we effectively have a rival kingdom to Saul's kingdom. It's small, it's weak, it's in exile. But for the first time, people start to follow David in his rejection by Saul. And by the establishment. And he becomes their commander, their captain. Tonight we'll look at how things got to this point and why. And we should also ask the question of how this fits into God's overall plan. You've probably already thought about that a bit as you've gone through the book of 1 Samuel. Why did God allow this set of circumstances to persist? Saul has been rejected. David has been anointed, but Saul is still the king. He's still the one on the throne, still the one in power. Why is that? Well, as I said, one thing, is, one thing that happens here for the very first time is that people have the opportunity to deliberately side with David. And some do. Despite the fact that he's currently in exile, fleeing for his life, there are those that have decided to throw in their lot with him what would happen to them if david was captured and killed by Saul would they be quietly forgiven and allowed to return to their homes and farms again i doubt that it was a big step for them to take to side with david here but what about when he eventually ascends to the throne when when he's acknowledged as god's chosen king? What will their loyalty to him in this time of rejection mean then? It doesn't take a massive leap in our thinking, does it, to see the relevance of this to us. We hold that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, that he is the one with ultimate authority over the whole universe, And yet we recognize that he is still rejected in this world. Maybe as you live as a Christian in your workplace, or in your university residence, or maybe among family members who aren't believers, it sometimes feels a little bit like being part of that group that was following David. It feels like you're swimming against the tide. It feels like the whole system is stacked against you. As we continue to learn more about David and his experiences in these chapters of 1 Samuel, the theme that I want to emphasize to you is that loyalty to a rejected king is costly, but it's worth it. Let's go back now and see the set of events that brought David to this point, fleeing for his life. Now, our passage today starts in chapter 20. Um, And in chapter 19, after initially agreeing uh, to Jonathan's pleas to stop pursuing David's life, Saul had once more uh, gone after him, this time causing uh, David to flee to Samuel in Ramah. And when David returned from there and found uh, Jonathan, uh, Jonathan found it really hard to believe that Saul was still trying to kill David, and David was trying to convince him he was adamant. Uh, that this was the case, that he was in real mortal danger, and Jonathan wasn't sure about this. So they contrived a scenario uh, to prove Saul's intentions. There was a big feast coming up uh, to celebrate uh, the new moon, and David would be missing from the king's table. He wanted to see what sort of reaction Saul had to that. If Jonathan was asked, he was to provide an excuse that David had asked permission to leave and to return to Bethlehem to his family and to celebrate a sacrifice with them there. And they formed an elaborate communication plan so that whenever Jonathan discovered his father's intentions towards David, he would be able to let David know the verdict, even if he suspected that his actions were being monitored. Jonathan was to go out to a field with his bows and arrow, bow and arrows uh, under the guise of practicing archery. And as he practices archery, he would shout instructions to the servant boy who was with him. And those instructions that were meaningless to anybody else would carry a message that David would understand. And David was to be hiding nearby uh, to find out what was happening. So the time came. And Saul, Jonathan, and Abner sat down to have their meal. And Saul noticed that David was missing, uh, thought about it to himself, concluded that he must have stayed away due to some ceremonial uncleanness or something like that. And that might have made sense. But when David was missing again the second day, Saul thought there must be something else at play and demanded a reason. Where is he? Why is he not here? Jonathan gave the excuse. He's asked permission and has gone back to Bethlehem for a family commitment. Saul is enraged when he hears this. His outburst demonstrates his true thinking, his true motives in this whole situation. His anger is inflamed as he speaks abusively to his son, Jonathan. Let's read uh, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Here we see Saul's motivation laid bare. His message to Jonathan is this, your future depends on David being eliminated. Saul had already been told that his monarchy would not continue in his family, that he would not have an ongoing dynasty. However, he was determined to do his best to try and ensure that the crown was passed on to his son, Jonathan. And this lies at that the heart of Saul's repeated attacks on David. He knew that David was the one standing between Jonathan and the throne. David was the one that presented a risk to his dynasty and to his succession. Now one of the things that is really remarkable as we read through these chapters is the contrast between Saul and Jonathan and specifically when we see their approach to future security, that of themselves and that of their descendants. We've seen Saul's attitude and how he thinks about it all, but let's look at Jonathan's. Let's read verses 12 to 15 where we get an insight into Jonathan's attitude and thinking. And Jonathan said, "'The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. "'When I have sounded out my father,' About this time tomorrow, or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you, as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Jonathan knows that he is not going to be the king of Israel. He knows that his future is not going to be secured by his own efforts to maintain his own dynasty. He's not interested in trying to oppose David. Rather, he recognizes that his future hope lies in being aligned with David. This was hugely costly to him personally. It meant voluntarily relinquishing his claim to the throne, and it meant opposing his father's stance in this whole matter. In these verses, Jonathan acknowledges that David will be king and wishes him the Lord's blessing. It would have been quite expected that a king coming to power would do everything they could to, to try and put down their, their rivals and any threats to the throne. But Jonathan asked David to, to show him the steadfast love of the Lord and that he would continue to show love to Jonathan's descendants after he was dead. He knows that the Lord will act for David and cut off all of his enemies. And he wants to be aligned with David, to be on his side, not to be an enemy. In short, Jonathan recognized that his, uh, the only hope that he could hold for the future, for himself or his descendants, was through abandoning his own claim to the throne and instead accepting David as king. Let's shift our focus for just a moment from this story to the Bible's bigger story. Where do our loyalties, the loyalties of our hearts, lie? Who is reigning in our lives? Or on what do we place our hopes and certainties for now and for the future? Just like in 1 Samuel, God's choice of a king has been made very clear. Uh, The one in whom he has uh, trusted all authority is his own son, Jesus Christ. In Psalm 2, we read a remarkable, we have a remarkable dialogue presented to us. We see a world in revolt against God and against his anointed one, Jesus. We see an attitude described there that wouldn't look too out of place in, in our day and in our culture. It says in Psalm 2, verses 2 to 3: the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. Their attitude is we we don't need or want a king or any authority for that matter. We don't want anyone to place any constraints upon us. We want to chart our own way. We want to be the ones to determine our own destinies, our own futures, our own meaning and purpose in life. But as individuals, we are left with the choice of whether we bow to this king that God has appointed or whether we hold out against him. Maybe I'm speaking to someone who does not acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord, as the ultimate authority. Maybe the cost of siding with him seems too great. Maybe it's hard to see how the claims of Jesus actually make sense in the world that you know and experience. Or maybe you are a follower of Jesus, but you're finding that being loyal to Him, the rejected King, is costly, and you're struggling with that. Is it really worth it? From Jonathan's point of view, it looked like a very, very costly decision to support David. Yet he knew that this was God's king. As crazy as it seemed, the crown prince supporting a rival, it was the rational thing to do considering the reality of the situation. We can take encouragement from Jonathan's actions as we seek to remain loyal to a king who is currently rejected. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul encourages Christians who are suffering and struggling by pointing them to the eternal glory that far outweighs their current sufferings. He calls on them to fix their eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. To draw the parallel to David and Jonathan, not on the current establishment, not on the one who's currently on the throne, but on God's decreed outcome. Because, just as Paul says to the Corinthians, what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. Let's think again about the circumstances that David and Jonathan found themselves in. It's clear that it's a really, really high stakes situation. David said, there is but a step between me and death. And Jonathan was placing himself in a position of huge risk. At one point, his his own father tried to kill him. So why did David and Jonathan trust each other in these circumstances, in this highly charged, high-stakes scenario? Why were they certain that the other wouldn't betray them whenever it was more advantageous for them? We've already looked a little bit at some of the verses that talk about their friendship and their relationship. But it's remarkable as you read through these chapters to see how much they talk about their relationship before the Lord. And specifically how they talk about uh, the fact that there was a covenant between them. Now, a covenant is simply just the legal basis underpinning a relationship. An example that we could think of is when two people exchange marriage vows. They're going to commit to spending their futures together. And with that level of commitment and investment, they want this relationship to be like formalized and formalized legally. So not only do they have a ceremony and a reception and all of that, but they sign legally binding documents that underpin the relationship and what each one of them is really expecting out of this relationship. And there was a covenant between David and Jonathan, a a legal basis to their relationship that, whereby they were really able to trust each other. And we first read about it in chapter 18, um, after David had killed Goliath. And here at the start of chapter 20, David is quick to remind Jonathan of that covenant when he is asking Jonathan to help him to safety. He says, therefore, deal kindly with your servant, For you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. This covenant meant a lot to both of them. It was the basis upon which they really were trusting each other and and knew the real substance of their relationship and friendship. Here, David is asking Jonathan to side with him, not to deliver him to Saul on the basis of the relationship that they had and of the covenant that underpinned that relationship. He said, if there's any guilt in me, kill me yourself. Don't deliver me to your father, though. And he's confident that he's blameless. And later, whenever Jonathan is asking David to look kindly on him and on his descendants, he again makes a covenant with David. In verse number 16 and 17, it says, Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Of course, later when David's kingdom was established, we see how he treated Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, with kindness and mercy for Jonathan's sake. In fact, David went out of his way to find a descendant of Saul so that he could show kindness to him. It was like he was looking for any opportunity to come good on the promises that he had made to Jonathan. It's remarkable, I think, in our case, that God is not content to leave us in any doubt about the type of relationship that he wants to have with us. Isn't that totally amazing? He wants us to be certain of what to expect from our relationship with him. The Bible speaks of, uh, of many covenants. The one that I'm speaking about just now was first uh, announced by the, the prophet Jeremiah. And the book of Hebrews lays out the terms of that covenant for us. I've put a few of them just, or a few notes on the slide. I'll read the verses in full, though Hebrews 8, 10 to 12. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, And write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. The first thing to say when we look at these verses is that you can't help but notice The recurring expression, I will. Uh, This is what we call a one-party covenant. Here God is declaring what he will do. There is no obligation on us to do anything. He takes all of the responsibility in this relationship. So what do we expect when we enter into a relationship with God? First he says he's going to change us. He's going to change us by writing his laws on our minds and hearts. He's going to change the way we think, going to change our character. Ultimately, God wants to change us until we resemble his son, Jesus. And he will use the circumstances of life, the trials that we face, the various experiences that we go through to achieve this change in us. Sometimes we might feel that our progress in the Christian life is very slow, but take heart because God says he is going to make sure that this change takes place. He also says that he will develop that personal relationship that we have with him. He says, I will be their God and they will be my people. They will not need to teach each other uh, to know the Lord for they will all know me from the least to the greatest. Recently, one of my kids, asked me, how, how can we really grow to know God who we can't see when it seems difficult enough to actually really get to know people that we can see and interact with every day? Well, I don't have any simple answers to that question, but the encouragement that I do have is that God promises to make it happen. Of course, he's given us his word. He's placed his spirit within us who will teach us about himself, reveal himself to us, But ultimately, he says that he will do it. He'll make it happen. He wants us to cooperate. He wants us to seek him. But he doesn't ask us to take responsibility for that task. Finally, he says, I will remember their sins no more. It's not that he forgets about our sins or doesn't know about them or something like that. But having forgiven us, legally declared us to be righteous, he says that he will never bring them up against us again. Isn't it amazing that, like that not, not only that God is willing to do these things for us and to take responsibility to make sure that they take place, but He wants us to be so secure in our relationship with Him that He actually guarantees all of this by a covenant and tells us that He will make it happen. It's on the basis of this, then, that we are encouraged to draw near to God to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So we come to the point where David, the future king, must flee once again for his life. Jonathan, after playing out the situation at the meal, knows that his father is determined to kill David takes his bow and his arrows, goes out to the field at the prearranged time, and as he lets the arrows fly, he shouts aloud to his servant boy the words that he knew David would understand. The arrows are beyond you. And David knew that it was a signal to run. Jonathan continues, hurry, be quick, do not stay. It has become too dangerous for David to remain. What follows, of course, is one of the most bittersweet records that we have of the love shared between two close friends. Jonathan sends his servant boy back to the city with his weapons, and despite the risk, David comes out from his hiding place as they embrace and weep and then depart from one another. Chapter 20, verse 42 says this, Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. With the exception of one brief encounter in the future, this is the last time that they will meet. David's pathway here is a difficult one as he runs. He's without provisions of food or weapons. and He finds both whenever he visits Ahimelech the priest at Nob. From there, he flees to Gath. Remember, that was the city that Goliath was from. Actually carrying with him Goliath's sword, the one he had taken from the fallen giant and, and chopped his head off. And with that sword goes to the city of Gath, actually putting himself in tremendous danger, such a dangerous situation that he has to pretend to be mad, with his own saliva running down his beard, acting out as if he was insane so that they dismiss him as a madman. Over the course of these chapters, we see David leave his seat at the king's table. He'll be rejected by the establishment. He'll go right into the enemy's stronghold. Before we eventually end where we began, at the cave of Adullam, where the true but rejected king is surrounded by his loyal followers. It reminds us, doesn't it, of the words of the Lord Jesus shortly before he would be betrayed and arrested. The Son of Man goes, he said. But how far would he have to go? He too will be rejected. By the establishment. He too would have spit run down his face and be dismissed as a madman before eventually they would nail him to a cross. Rejected. Just before those events, he shared a final meal with his closest friends and he said, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover, this meal with you before I suffer. He said, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. It meant so much for the Lord to have those few disciples who were loyal to him. It meant so much for him to be able to share a meal with them before he would go to the cross. In 1 Samuel, it was God's plan to have two kings, one in the palace and one in a cave. The situation showed who would be a true and loyal follower of David. If he had been in the palace, everyone would have flocked to him regardless of what they thought of him. In God's wisdom, he has allowed his son The king in in whom he has vested all authority to remain as a rejected king for now. And now we have the opportunity to be loyal followers of our Lord Jesus. Not only because it is the rational thing to do, but also because of the joy and the delight that it brings to him. Let's just close our time in prayer. Father, we thank you for these remarkable narratives that you have recorded uh, in your word for us to read and to study and to learn. We thank you for the story of David and Jonathan. We thank you for how these circumstances uh, really laid bare the uh, the love uh, between these two close friends. And we thank you that as we read it, we see in this King of your choosing so many lessons in uh, your ultimate king, the the one who you have placed in authority uh, over this whole universe. We know that just like David, your son is by many and by many societies and by many people rejected and thought little of and chased out and placed in the sidelines. We thank you that, Even still, uh, you invite people, everyone, individuals, uh, to choose to come and to pledge their loyalty to him and to to come into the good of that covenant, that promise, that relationship that you hold out. We thank you that, that our king was willing to go so far to make that be possible. We thank you that he was willing to to go to depths that are so far deeper than anything that David or any other human ever experienced. We thank you that he took on the greatest foe and he was victorious. And we thank you for uh, the fact that he has made it possible for your heart's desire and love to be uh, shown to us and and demonstrated to us that we can listen to the words of uh, this covenant And the relationship that it uh, unfolds to us, and we marvel at that. We thank you for providing for us such security, such confidence, uh, because you have uh, been so clear and because you have uh, made it so certain. And we just praise and thank you for this tonight. We just want to pray for each person that uh, is here. We pray that once more your word would be of, of benefit to each one. And as we commit ourselves to you now tonight, in the Savior's name, amen.